0: How fashion and luxury will evolve in the face of disruption brought on by the pandemic, new technologies, and environmental and social concern is a question top of mind for the industry. What will fashion look like in 2, 3, or 10 years time? To answer it, we're spending 30 minutes each week with industry innovators leading the way through a changing landscape. I'm Hillary Milnes and this is The Future of Fashion: The Innovators by Vogue Business.
1: This podcast is sponsored by PayPal, the most trusted buy now, pay later brand according to a recent survey, which gives merchants access to PayPal's 300 77 million users worldwide. Learn more at paypal.com slash paylaterenterprise.
0: Hello and welcome to this episode of The Future of Fashion, The Innovators by Vogue Business. I'm your host, Hillary Milne's. The idea that conscientious consumers can single-handedly change fashion for the better has been challenged by those who think brands need to take responsibility for their production practices. Fashion has begun to respond. Today's guests are Pascal Brun, Head of Sustainability at H&M, and Aisha Baronblatt, Founder and CEO of Remake, here to discuss. We'll come to Pascal and Aisha in just a moment. Also here today is Rachel Cernansky, Senior Sustainability Editor at Vogue Business. Hi, Rachel. Great to have you on again.
2: Hey, Hilary. It's great to be
0: here. Of course. So you've become a regular on the show. We have a lot to discuss in terms of sustainability and you have covered H&M sustainability commitments for us a few times in the past. Um, What are the highlights? They have commitments in all the
2: big areas, you know, emissions reductions, chemical use, where they stand out. You know, when I talk to a lot of people in the industry and, and sort of watching the industry is in their sort of investments in different sustainability sort of innovations and technologies and the fact that they're an early adopter of different, you know, recycling technologies or or different things like that.
0: Give us an intro to Remake. Um, Why did you want to bring Aisha and Pascal together in this episode?
2: Remake has been focused on uh, workers' rights and women's rights specifically in the fashion supply chain. And they really led a lot of the the pay-up campaign over the last year to get brands to fulfill the obligations that they had committed to uh, with suppliers to pay for the orders that they had placed because a lot of them were being canceled and suppliers were being left with, with a lot of debt and unable to pay their workers. And in general, outside of the pandemic, they, um, I mean, she'll talk more, but they they do a lot of worker advocacy. I wanted to bring them together because brands often talk about pushing more sustainability when consumers demand it. And they wait for consumer demand or they sort of see if something sells and then they'll scale it up. And on the consumer side, there's a lot of push for, you know, buying more consciously but then you know that only goes so far and i've written a bunch about the need for regulations to really level the flip playing field for for brands that are putting in the work to to you know invest in more sustainability and and ethical practices so the consumer can only do so much and um and it's really asking a lot for consumers to you know have a lot of homework to do on on who's doing what right but that said brands do you know run businesses and they need to be successful in, by whatever terms they define that and so there is a role for the consumer to play so i just wanted to kind of tease out this question with pascal and with
0: Asia. wonderful well thanks rachel really excited for today's conversation um, and with that we'll bring our guests on um, pascal and aisha thanks so much for joining us today
1: thanks for having us
0: thank you for having us i'm delighted to be here Wonderful. Um, so let's get right into it. Um, Pascal, H&M, um, as Rachel pointed out, has implemented a number of sustainable practices um, and programs and initiatives within the organization. But how do you respond to criticism and, from those who say that it's an oxymoron for a fast fashion company to be truly sustainable?
1: Well, for us, basically, I mean, uh, fast fashion is about being able to react fast, fast on trend more than anything else. So the question for me, it's, it's rather, it's not about can fast fashion be sustainable, it's how fast fashion become more sustainable. It's not a question about should it, should it be or can it be, it's about a responsibility that all of us within the, the industry needs to change how fashion is made. We need to move from a circular, from a linear to a circular business model. That's, that's the key, that's crucial, that's crucial for our industry to get going. It's really important that we all, together within the industry, work hand in hand, collaborate, partner together with the manufacturers, with policymakers, with NGOs, with trade unions, in order to get towards that change. And we are on that journey. We are committed to change how fashion is made. We are committed to change the linear model to a circular model. We have great, meaningful results to come anytime. But I think it's, it's really important that we are on this all together and we are here to change, to change for a circular model where nothing goes to waste. And that's, that's really the, the, the key here. It's really how the product is made and not can it be made. It's how do we make it and how do we enforce all together to make it possible.
0: And Aisha, how do you look at production volume versus circularity uh, in terms of sustainable commitments? Um, Pascal talked a lot about partnerships and and working with the right organizations, and and that's kind of the side that you're on. Is that right?
3: That's right. So, you know, at Remake, we are an advocacy organization as someone who has spent time inside the industry, working both within brands and on the policy side, I realized this was really a missing piece of the puzzle. And, you know, when I think about sustainability, it's, you know, let's just look at the facts. In the last 30 years, we've essentially had companies, brands, lead the sustainability conversation without any regulation. And what we've seen in the last 30 years is that fashion's impact on people and the planet has really increased. And so first and foremost, when we think about what needs to happen, it's about urgency. We are... We can all agree in a crisis, a climate crisis, the biggest humanitarian crisis, as Rachel was sharing, with the COVID and economic slowdown for garment workers. And, you know, as the pandemic has taught us, we are really rubbing up against ecological boundaries. And so when we hear from brands that we are working on it, you know, for us, it's just not good enough because it's to say, look, this is urgent and we need you to acknowledge that we are living in a finite planet with finite resources. Second, for us, this is about degrowth. You know, circularity has become a very popular uh, buzzword in the industry. But if we are truly to move to a circular system, then we have to have the conversation around, well, how many units of clothes are you putting out in the world? And are you actually making ecological gains? And there's no way to do that without having degrowth in the agenda. Because, you know, making and then whether you recycle or what have you, which has all other kinds of implications... You're still dealing with a finite amount of resources. And then finally, for us, it's about equity. You know, once we acknowledge that the system is finite, then, you know, there's a question of, well, how do we equitably distribute? How do we equitably distribute resources that are finite? And I'd love Pascal's opinion on this. You know, we know that so many natural resources and labor from our part of the world, from the global south, has essentially enriched Western brands. And so, if we are in a finite pie, you know, how do we assure that there is equity in these conversations?
0: And Pascal, since HM is such a large organization, you're focusing on, on topics like moving from linear to circularity. Where does sustainability sit within within HM? Can you give us an idea of just what your role um, oversees, what teams you work with? How do you make sure that the work that you're doing isn't contained to this? you know, a sustainability department, quote unquote, and is actually, you know, pervasive throughout the entire organization.
1: Well, I, just also to tag on what Aisha just said, I think I, I fully agree there is an urgency and that's, that's definitely the journey we are embarking on. There is an urgency in terms of securing resources, decoupling and securing social justice. This is the journey we are on. And, and the, the fashion industry needs to realize that there is a change that is needed. Changes are happening in, in a pace that none of us should be satisfied on right now. And, and this is really where we are putting all our efforts. So the effort that we put, I mean, you mentioned about our organization. We have 250 people within h H&M group that are specifically working on sustainability mainly across our supply chain. I used to live in Asia for the last 15 years. I lived in Bangladesh for five. I live in China for seven, in Hong Kong for seven. This is where basically most of our organization are spending hours, effort, and time to secure a change. The more we are moving on our agenda, the more we need to integrate sustainability into everything we do. So sustainability doesn't remain a a silo function. But sustainability has to be integrated where decisions are taken, where change can be possible. And these are things, our natural movement that has taken place in the last few years. And we are on that journey to basically reshape the way we work in sustainability from a silo functions towards integration in every functions where basically someone at H&M touched the products. And and right now, data allows us to do those meaningful decisions. We need to change internally how we work, how we empower data for designers, for buyers, for everyone that touch a product to see, okay, what meaningful impact I am creating here. And basically, it goes with goals. It goes with putting targets on our own team, putting targets on our organization, putting targets on performance with our suppliers as well. And this is the journey that we are, we are on. Is it fast enough? No, it's not. And, and that's definitely where we should put our effort, together with our manufacturing partners, together with policymakers, regulation, governments, together with NGOs and advocacy companies like what Aisha is representing today, Remake. We need to work together end in end to make that change Happening fast enough.
0: You mentioned data. Obviously, that's a it's a it's a compelling way to, to move forward on sustainability goals. What what type of data do you use and inform designers with? And and what have you found to be you know, useful in, in, in terms of moving your goals forward?
1: Great that you asked this question. I think data is the new goal. I mean, we are all in search of data. Basically, the data, the primary data that we look at is the carbon footprint impact and that's on, on the environmental side and then on social is basically all the the social aspect for the workers and the workforce wages and health and safety and human rights data that we have on our on our supply chain and we have tools to do that right now what we are doing i mean in the last 10 years we have been involved with SAC and the hig index And right now is really about empowering those data. Of course, all these data can be improved and all these measurements can be improved, but we need to start somewhere in being able to have one comparison for the whole industry to be measured on the same thing. Once that is done, then we can start to improve those measurements and improve the data. But I think it's really important that we get towards uniformity and and to, to basically being able to measure everyone on the same things. Ultimately, this will not be enough. Then the next step on data is to be to make that data visible and transparent for everyone. And that's where you're gonna create change. We are committed as well to anytime soon being able to launch the Higue transparency index because this is what will basically enable customers to make meaningful decisions.
3: I mean, if I could just interject, you know, we know that within the Higue and SAC there have been uh, aspirations to make it public-facing for a very long time, and that's simply not happened. And I I really do think, you know, as Joseph Stiglitz once said, you know, you measure the wrong thing, you're going to get the wrong outcomes, right? And so for the industry, for the fashion industry to decide what we're measuring, to decide who gets to see it and what we're collecting, here we are 30 years later and we simply haven't made enough progress. And that 's why I think, in some ways, putting the onus on the private sector to to make all of this progress by themselves is a fool's errand you know for us to have uniformity you know, in what we 're collecting what we 're needing is smart regulation and essentially, you know if you were to ask me some thirty years on this journey, well, what do we need to see? Well, really, we need um, data and measurement, but really progress around climate justice and gender justice. It's just that
1: simple. I fully agree with Ayesha. I think the data, the data needs to be credible. And how do you make data credible is by having the right third party to verify it. That's exactly the reason why, from a social aspect and, and when it comes to wages, we are working very closely with trade union and act as well as a group to basically empower collective bargaining agreement within our supply chain. That's the key. That's crucial for us to get towards enabling fair living wage. That's not about the brands to decide what a fair living wage is. It's really about trade union partners together with the workers to basically enable mechanism. So the next step is really how do we empower collective bargaining agreement in supply chain? That's why we are together with ACT, which is action, collaboration and transformation, group of brands plus trade unions Joining together to basically enable policy work in the countries where we are, like Bangladesh, like uh, India and so on, to enable collective bargaining agreement around wages. And that's crucial. That's one piece of the element which is crucial in being able to enable workers to have their voice on their wages.
2: Pascal, can you talk about what the role of the customer is in making sustainable practices successful, and you know does does h m decide whether to scale some new you know pilot program uh, based on how sales perform and and maybe just bring in some of that of that those last few minutes of conversation with you know the last ten years like the that change has been slow. Why has it been so slow? What has been the role of the consumer until now and moving forward?
1: I mean, obviously, customers play a key role. And, and that's why I think for us, transparency is a key matter here. It's to to bring transparent data around our products and how the product is made and where it's made is crucial for our customers to be able to make meaningful decisions. This is for us a no-brainer, and, and this is... Exactly the reason why we joined the SSE 10 years ago, because the vision is about that. The vision is really to put into the customer's eyes the the impact of the brands, the impact of the products and the impact of the supplier where the product has been made. And, And that's crucial. Those data are crucial for customers to be able to make meaningful decisions. So that's for me our first point of entry where the customers will play a key role then customers will play a key role as well in, in understanding the products that they are buying as well and understanding the impact that they can make by probably extend life of their garments. So the whole business model around as well that becomes crucial for customers to understand how to repair, how to mend their products, how to keep their products longer, how to rent certain products when it's needed, how to buy secondhand when it's as well needed. So it's all this new circular business model around the product that are crucial for customers to step into as well. Here, we need to basically, there is a big work of education as well. And we need also to be transparent in what impact they can make by having these obvious options. But at the end of the day, it's on the brand to make those available for the customers. We can't push sustainability to to customers. Customers need to pull sustainability from the brand. That's how it is. So the brands needs to push it.
2: And Isha, what role do you see fashion brands sort of expecting customers to play in driving sustainability? And, you know, what's your thought on is that an effective way to approach sustainability?
3: So, you know, within Remake, outside of our advocacy campaigning to hold the industry transparent and accountable, we do a lot of education work. You know, to Pascal's point, so much of this starts with education. We are in high schools and colleges and universities and fashion clubs. And one of the things that we have picked up from, you know, everyday citizens is just a lot of confusion. And partly the confusion comes from today, um, it's completely unregulated, right? What you can call a sustainable product. Anyone can slap the label sustainable on a capsule collection. You know, you can have a percentage of polyester blend product and say it's sustainable. So even for people who are wanting to do the right thing, um, it's very hard to know well what is sustainable and what isn't. Which is why we, as a watchdog organization, have you know a sustainable brands directory, and as in a nonprofit. It's a way for people to know we don't take any affiliate marketing. We're not connected to the industry in any way. We are looking at an arm's length and rating brands on all of these intersectional issues of waste and water and human rights and how do they connect? Because very quickly, as you know, Pascal and Rachel, this gets very complicated. And for an everyday person, I have a lot of empathy to say, look, even if I'm wanting to do the right thing, I don't know, is organic cotton a good thing? But oh, by the way, our organic cotton is probably coming from the Uyghur forced detention camp. So maybe it's not such a good thing. So I'd say, you know, we really need to reframe how we're going to make progress with this notion that the two players at play here are brands and customers. So we first and foremost really cost our community to recognize that we are citizens first and consumers second. And to realize that a lot of these wicked problems that we're talking about within the fashion industry, the only way for us to make progress is to to garner the political will, is to get smart regulation in sending and receiving countries, is to hold brands accountable, to truly be more transparent. And
2: Pascal, let's talk about, you know, H&M's progress so far and plans for the future. Where has H&M gotten in terms of circularity and a circular business model? And are there plans in place to launch rental or resale?
1: Well, as I said, I mean, circularity is one of the key elements in in us being able to change the industry from a linear to a circular model. The industry, regardless of where you are, the size that you have, will have to move from linear to circular. We talked about that. The resources are finite. We need to decouple from natural resources. So how we have defined circularity? We have basically taken an holistic approach of circularity from the design. And we are basically looking at circular product and circular design, the choice of materials. And here we have our conscious collection and we have our regular assortment to basically start to move the conventional materials into more sustainable materials. To Ayesha's point, what sustainable material means, this is very important as well to align. And we have just gone to a definition on our website because we felt the need to explain to our customers how do we define sustainable material. And I would suggest all the brands to do that because this is so important that in this education part, it's very important that we start to educate what a more sustainable material is. Then it's about the production processes as well and how the production is taking place uh, with renewable energy, with uh, what type of uh, ETP is using, water uh, treatment plant, what type of, of chemicals are being used as well. And then it's about the customer use and the customer end use. And by customer use, we mean All the circular business model and the end use is basically the closing the loop and the recycle. We have activities in all these these five elements and it's very, very important that this constitute our circularity agenda. Now to your questions, are we launching rental or resale? Well, we have done that in 2019. I think the COVID has put those plans on hold for some time rental has been also uh, a a very challenging business model in a a pandemic situation. So we are now looking into how we're going to scale that, how we're going to reshape a rental business model. But we have rental available here in Stockholm at the moment. When it comes to resale, we have a resale partner that we are working with named Selpi. We are a majority shareholder of that company. And this is also... A platform that now is available in Sweden, in Germany. We are basically looking into what further scale we can have, but basically it's a platform that enables a C2C, customers-to-customers a reselling platform. This is about business model that will scale, business model that our customer demands as well. And we are all in for that. This is the future and this is what will constitute a circularity agenda, but also the Help us to decouple from natural resources in terms of of uh, new products in, uh, in in diversification.
2: And has the company done any projections on how big resale needs to grow in order to then offset a certain amount of production, you know, new production volume?
1: Right now, we are we are basically testing uh, in Sweden and Germany, as I said, soon to be in uh, in other countries as well we are still in a, in, in a phase where we need to define how, what will be the share of resale business model in future. We are in, in building that at the moment. So I can't, I can't really be more precise than that.
3: Could I just ask you a question, Pascal? You know, I'm just curious because when we think about circularity, the only way for us to make progress is if we know, you know, how are you going to measure the growth in recycled and the growth in revenue sales from resale and those numbers have to be bigger than the reduction in new product production, right? So unless you have those tangible measures out in the public domain, we're not going to get anywhere.
1: I fully agree. And, and those, those numbers are, are quite tough to get. And we are, we are getting them at the moment. Our goal is 2040 to become climate positive. So as you say, basically decrease more our emission than what we emit. That's what. Basically, climate positive will mean. Basically, we are right now measuring every step of our value chain around our emissions, what will need to happen 2025, 2030 in order to be on the carbon law and the Paris Agreement. We are, we are on that. We are there.
2: I'm hearing a lot of people at brands throughout the industry saying that the, you know the way things work Is not sustainable, and we have to change. And there's there's a recognition of the urgency of the problem. It seems like it's pretty universal, which I think is probably a pretty big change from from maybe even five years ago, and definitely ten or more. But the thought ends there, and I'm wondering what the sort of Consequence is like does H and M sort of hold itself accountable?
1: Well, as I said, it's to move from a linear to a circular business model, and the circular business model, the new revenue stream that that will generate, will basically compensate a decoupling somewhere else. So, the whole how we're going to move there. I mean, we are in each and every steps. circular products, circular design. Change of materials. Today, we are at 64% more sustainable materials and recycled within our assortment. We were 57 last year, 65% this year. We are targeting 2030 to be 100 To be honest, 2030 will be a timeline that we're going to revise. But we are moving as well to come back to recycled polyester. 2025, we're going to have 30% of recycled material in our assortment. We have studies going on. There is no more microplastic with recycled polyester than with virgin polyester. So the microplastic remains a problem, and that I fully agree with you. So polyester is a problem. Now, how do we decrease the dependencies on crude oil is to move to recycled polyester. Is the answer to be from a PET bottle to a recycled polyester? No, the answer will be ultimately from fiber to fiber. And that's where our investments are going. It's to really have a fiber to fiber recycling process on all our materials which will be recycled so this is very important it's crucial in our decoupling from natural resources it's crucial in us being able to decrease our carbon emission it's crucial in basically being able to create a change from a linear to a circular model
3: and this is where you know we'd have to agree to disagree because there are as we know there are tangible and concrete land-based limits to natural fiber production but you know if we do not have biologically compatible materials, whether polyester or recycled polyester that we are then dealing with putting out into the planet, we know that wearing and laundering leaks this fiber into our ecosystem. So it's just, there's no way to close that system. There's no way to actually be circular in that way. And then that comes back to this question of limitless growth and, you know, How can a company say I'm going to not grow when that's your business model?
1: Well, the the growth will come from from different angles, from different revenue streams.
2: Aisha, do you see any examples of fashion communicating with consumers in a way that you think can be a model for the engagement and the re-education that's needed to, to transform consumer behavior at scale?
3: I don't see it at scale. You know, I see interesting, smaller businesses that are essentially where you can put the right kind of data that's most important in the public domain. I look at Mizzolo's lowest wage challenge, you know, so sort of telling, not just publishing their own lowest wage data, but telling the entire industry, like, let's just say who are the lowest paid people in our supply chain and how are we going to get to living wages? But, you know, when you see a privately held company becoming public, a huge multinational with a complex and fragmented supply chain, I think educating the customers becomes very difficult because in many ways you don't really have control over your supply chain and you're constantly moving the targets because you are in this, you know, putting masses of product out there. And so I really think education comes from more organizations like ours that don't have skin in the game, right? We're not in the business of selling you one thing over another. So our education is really scientific-based facts on which materials, how much water, what's the carbon impact, what's the human rights abuses. And so I really do think you have to look at the source and who's doing the education and, and what is it that they have for us. It really is about centering the people that make our clothes. You know, we are a worker rights organization. First and foremost, every morning when I get up and I'm trying to educate our citizen community, it's, are the makers of our clothes, are our planet better off from the campaigns, from the products that we are showcasing.
0: Pascal, we're almost out of time, but you referenced customer education and participation plays a big role in this, especially for a circularity model, for new revenue streams. Um, Do you want to go into a bit of detail how you plan to educate customers and also just earn their trust as as you navigate this?
1: That's a crucial point, I think. I mean, there are different mechanisms to educate. I mean, Aisha talks about some. It's to be present on those platforms where basically our customers are. It's to go to universities as well. It's to go to academia and get going. This is a work that our 250 people that I mentioned about are doing on their on, on their not daily job, but but almost. Then it's about how do you... Put forward data and transparent data to your customers as well. This is also an education vehicle. It's about the platform that you are using, the website that you are using. We have just launched an HM.com platform, which called Let Change under HM.com, which is basically our platform where we can discuss with our customers. We have different platforms and different vehicles where we are answering our customers through that platform as well. We are also launching now uh, a, a reward system for our customers which adopt sustainable behaviours. For example, customers that choose uh, last mile delivery by bicycle will get, will get points will get more points. Uh, customers that are basically uh, bringing their own bags and not buying a bag at HM will get more points as well. Customers that will uh, bring back their garments for recycling get more points as well. So we are basically incentivizing customer behavior in creating a change. This is also one vehicle to create awareness, to create change, and to basically engage with our customers. It's very important that we engage in those discussions. The more we're going to talk about them, the more we're going to be able to bring awareness to them but the more we're going to be able to solve problems as well.
0: Great. Thank you so much, Pascal and Aisha, for joining us. And Rachel, big thanks to you as well for being here.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much.
0: We'll be back next week with another conversation with fashion's leading innovators. You can find all our shows from this series on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via the Vogue Business website. For more coverage on the future of fashion, subscribe to the Vogue Business newsletter at voguebusiness.com. My name is Hilary Milneys. That was the Future of Fashion. Thanks for listening.
1: This podcast is sponsored by PayPal, the most trusted buy now, pay later brand, according to a recent survey, which gives merchants access to PayPal's 377 million users worldwide. Learn more at paypal.com slash paylater enterprise.